Thank you for joining me. I wanted to ask a favor of our growing community of listeners. If you like the show and it's connecting with you, please spread the word by telling a friend, sharing it online, or writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. We greatly appreciate your support. Before we begin, please be advised that today's episode will discuss topics for mature audiences. Some people meditate while sitting, others while walking. But for many, they reach a higher state through other means. If meditation brings you into the present and closer to the divine, so, for many, can sex. Many ancient traditions, including my own, revere acts of sex as a mean to a higher state of consciousness. But sex is complicated and about many things, and we rarely talk about it. But today, my friends, that's going to change. And that change begins with a captivating conversation with a quote-unquote sexpert. You know, to be a sexpert, you just have to call yourself one. It's like being a modern dancer, an abstract artist. <laughs> I'm Deepak Chopra, and this is Infinite Potential, where we explore what makes us conscious beings and why it matters that we are. Sexual intimacy and expression may be the closest we humans get to truly seeing our own nature. Our desires are uninhibited selves. But it's also a battleground of needs and shaped by moral constructs. So how can sex be a true path to freedom? Dan Savage has been at the vanguard of the American conversation around sexuality for more than 20 years. His quest is to remoralize human perceptions of intimacy, to make it a more conscious choice and a conscious act. Long before Dan was a syndicated journalist, radio and podcast host, and celebrated author, he was just a kid with feelings he didn't fully understand. You know, the other gay boys I met when I was, you know, 15, 16 years old, and I was coming out, I really sorted them into two groups. It was pretty easy for me to sort them. And there were the guys who were gay and thought, there's something terribly wrong with me. And they lived with a lot of damage and had to undo a lot of damage. And many of them couldn't, you know, pick that lock and free themselves. And then there were the guys who were like, I'm fine. Everybody else is crazy. And I was one of those guys. I couldn't see, based on my kind of Catholic morality, what was wrong with this? Who was harmed by this? Um, and it didn't make any sense to me uh, what my church, what my parents were telling me. Not about gay people, but about me, because I knew myself to be a, a decent and good person, and what they were telling me about me wasn't right. And then that became the thread I began to pull that unraveled the garment of faith for me, mm -hmm. because you know I'm sitting there in my Catholic schools, even in grade school, mm -hmm. thinking, if what they're telling me about me is wrong, what else are they wrong about? Mm -hmm. And it didn't take long for the whole thing to disintegrate. Once it fell apart, it was just like... I can't know what I can't know. And I don't trust anyone who tells me that they know what they can't know. 
And so I found it more comforting to live with ambiguity uh, and to live with the question than to go find some different answer. Why do you think religion and sexuality, and this is not only true of Catholic religion, it's true all over the world, but why, what do you think is this essential conflict? Is it about power uh, between religion, morality, and sexuality? I think it's about power. I think it's about control. I also think it's about fear. Mm-hmm. I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic schools. I had a Catholic education. There were good parts of that, and there were bad parts of that, and I saw a lot of hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. But what I, you know, my feeling about why religion so often involves itself with sex is control. Because if you can insert yourself, or if an institution or a belief system can insert itself between your desire for salvation, between the spiritual sort of urge or sense. And your sexual urges, the the person you are sexually, they can really control you Mm -hmm. because sex is older and more powerful than we are. Sexual reproduction is 250 million, 500 million years old or billion years old, whatever it is. And we swan around pretending that we're in charge of it and we create religious traditions and beliefs uh, in in an effort to order it. And we can't order it. But we, you know, we need to be in control of it. I'm not one of those people in the sex-positive movement who believes that any sexual impulse is can be or should be acted on. Sex is really powerful. Uh, mm-hmm. And we have to find a way to work with it and channel it. But we negotiate the terms of our surrender with sex. We're not in charge. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to find a way to channel your desires, your identity, your orientation, your interests, uh, that's healthy and constructive and consensual, but you just can't damn it up. Mm-hmm. And a lot of religious traditions, if you are non-normative, if you are not uh, heterosexual, um, if you are not uh, inclined to or uh, good at monogamy, there's not a lot of space for you in most religious traditions. It still took a lot of courage for you to start to express yourself. Well, yeah, particularly in 1979 and 1980 when I was coming out, in the 80s, when Ronald Reagan was president, and a couple years later, gay men began to come down with what was called GRID at the time, gay-related immunodeficiency, gay cancer, and then AIDS. We need a constitutional amendment now to define the family as one man legally married to one woman. So there is no problem hating sin, but loving the sin. Not even the barnyard practices anything else. As a president, he could have been more concerned about the AIDS uh, epidemic when it broke out. Ladies and gentlemen, this is old-fashioned fear, and it has no place in the home of the brave. It was a scary time. and It was hard to tell my parents Um, I was raised in a family where both of my parents were brought up in children are to be seen and not heard households, and they wanted to raise us differently. And so we were encouraged to have opinions. We were encouraged to argue and defend those opinions. The dinner table was always a very lively conversation. Um, We had to defend our points. We couldn't just make assertions. And our parents would defeat us in argument, and then we would have to do the work to win the argument or defend our own position. So all along, you had good relationship with your parents? Yes. And then my parents joked, my mom joked that they paid the price because when I came to believe that there was nothing wrong with me for being gay, I insisted on taking that position with them and arguing with them about that. Very early when I came out to my mother, 
And I came out to my mom first. Coming out to my dad was scarier because he had been a pretty homophobic guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Not necessarily his fault, just his conditioning. His conditioning, and he was a Chicago cop on the north side of Chicago in the 60s and 70s, and the gay neighborhood was a you know a mob-run kind of distressed and distressing area. When I came out to my dad, you know, at that point, pretty much every gay man he'd ever met has, had been a murderer or a corpse. Hmm. Um, and so it wasn't what he wanted for us. And I mean, my parents did their best with the information they had on hand. I was really angry a lot in the 80s and 90s, uh, a little bit at my parents because of the things they'd said to me. But all they knew of homosexuality was that it was something you, a kid might drift into. And if you didn't want your kid to drift that way, you had to kind of push them in the opposite direction. And I was the only kid in our relatively large family um, that seemed to be drifting that way. So I got pushed a lot. Uh, and it was, they did it from a place of love and concern, but it was really damaging, but not malicious. But when I came out to my mom, you know, the thing she said was, I, you know, she was really saddened by it uh, because it meant I would never marry or have children. Mm -hmm. And we're sitting there on an L platform in Chicago having this conversation. And I looked at her and said, whose fault is that, that I can't marry or have children? We didn't make that rule, you did. Straight people made that rule. Why am I being punished for that? You know, if your real sadness here is I can't marry or have children, let's change that. And then I can. And she looked at me and said, God damn it. (laughs) Was there a moment when you had this deep insight that uh, whatever issues we have around our uh, sexuality and uh, sexual norms are just stories and constructs from culture that get recycled and there's nothing intrinsically true or false about them? Was there a moment when you realized that? Oh, God. Um, It may have been the first time I had sex with another man. Like, literally, I had been raised to believe that if I did that, that I would change in some fundamental way, that the world would change in some fundamental way, that that the skies would open. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have this distinct memory of leaving Joe's apartment. His name (laughs) was Joe. And walking toward the Argyle L-stop in Chicago. And looking up at the sky and thinking, nothing has changed. Perhaps more freedom. More freedom, and there was intimacy and connection there, and it didn't take long for me to, you know, put screw and screw together, as I like to say, (laughs) uh, and to realize that straight people have a lot more sex than they do children. Even straight people who are the Duggars or the Santorums who want every act to be open to conception, Mm -hmm. there's a limit. You can have, you know, the, the most Irish Catholic family in our neighborhood, the Brady's, had 12 children. They didn't have sex 12 times. So <laughs> obviously sex played some other role in our lives and in, and in the, a couple's intimacy than just reproduction. And, you know, when you consider that uh, unlike cats or deer, we don't go into heat, mm-hmm. uh, that we have hidden menses and hidden ovulation, and we're always sort of ready for sex, uh, 
and needing it and craving it, that, that, that intimacy and connection and pleasure, that is what sex is for in, in human cultures and society and in our lives. In the same way, it's a little bit like dinner. You know, we don't just sit there and eat kind of a protein gruel with some fiber in it and call it a meal. We come together uh, around the table. We come together around food. Our, our food traditions can be very elaborate. They can be very indulgent because it's not just about sustenance. In this, and in the same way, sex isn't just about reproduction. It's about intimacy, connection, and pleasure as well. And I looked at my own life and I looked when I first started you know, having boyfriends and I saw in our relationships, everything I saw in the relationships that my straight siblings and aunts and uncles and parents had too, mm -hmm. except it wasn't open to conception. <laughs> After the break, Dan and I discuss these thorny issues of intimacy and connection in greater detail, particularly when it comes to monogamous relationships. What happens when our biology and our culture come into conflict? Your diet influences how you feel, your mood, your behavior, and how you sleep. But there's no such thing as a universally healthy diet. The same food can cause healing in one person and inflammation in another person based on each person's gut microbiome. Viome analyzes the functions of our gut microbiome through artificial intelligence and deep learning. I have personally done the Viome test, and my family has done it also. It has been a great help in understanding what foods I should avoid and why, and what foods are good for me and why. Go to viome.com slash Deepak and get 50% off the regular price. Now that we've discussed our gut, let's return to our discussion of our heart. We return with Dan Savage to talk about one of the most controversial questions in the canon of sexpertise. To be monogamous or not to be? That is the question. You've been um, associated with the expression monogamish. So I want to get your opinion on whether monogamy is a social construct or is it uh, biological? It's not, but we wish it was. It's not that we wish it was. But we it wish was. it was. And for a long time, we pretended it was. Uh -huh. And we would run around saying that we're a naturally monogamous species, that monogamy is natural. Mm -hmm. You don't have to threaten a species with death to do that which comes naturally to it. We don't have to stand there by the side of the ocean with a gun ordering the fish to swim or we'll kill them. And yet... There are so many religious traditions and cultural traditions where people who were committed adultery were threatened with death or put to death. And if it came naturally, if it was our natural state to to pair bond and then to mate with only that one person for life, it wouldn't have even come up in the Ten Commandments or anywhere else. It wouldn't have needed to be said. Mm -hmm. We are, I believe, a socially monogamous species. We're, we're a pair bonding species, but we're obviously not a sexually monogamous species. And when I say these things, I'm not arguing for non-monogamy. I'm not telling everyone to be not monogamous. Saying these things actually helps people to be more realistic about what monogamy means and what it is. Because when you tell people that if they're in love, 
They won't want to sleep with anybody else. They will begin to doubt their commitment and their love if they're in a committed monogamous relationship and they meet somebody else that they have a crush on, somebody else that they might want to sleep with. They will think that this is a zero-sum game, that if I'm attracted to this person in that way, sexually, romantically, intimately, then I must not be in love with my partner anymore. Because you can't feel this way about more than one person at a time. That's very destabilizing, not for people who don't believe in monogamy, but it's destabilizing for people who do believe in monogamy, who wish to be monogamous. So to tell those people that you can feel these things about more than one person, monogamy doesn't mean you don't want to sleep with anybody else. Monogamy means you don't sleep mm -hmm. with anybody else. So I see what you're doing in a way is, uh, if I may say so, quite spiritual. We're giving people permission to feel what they feel without judgment, uh, which um, actually interferes with uh, getting in touch with our deeper self. And if we can feel what we feel without being labeled or judged, I think there's an element of freedom that allows you to get in touch with a deeper aspect of yourself. Is there any value in monogamy according to you? Oh, absolutely. There are advantages to to monogamous uh, pair bonding that I think those, and I'm not monogamous, uh, and I think that those of us who are not monogamous must You're salute, honest. <laughs> we have to salute those of you who are uh, <laughs> and say that there are definite advantages around, um, you know, security around paternity. Fewer worries about disease, although there are studies out there that show that people in monogamous relationships are as likely to get a sexually transmitted infection from their partner as people in non-monogamous relationships mm -hmm. are because people cheat. Mm -hmm. um, and often people who cheat under a kind of shame-driven pressure are reckless about it, uh, as opposed to people who are non-monogamous who aren't being driven by shame who will be careful about it. But anyway, there are advantages to monogamy around paternity, around disease security, around a certain kind of emotional security for a great many people mm -hmm. um, and a great many women. Women feel particularly threatened by non-monogamous behavior because for thousands of years to be divorced or abandoned, if you were a woman, was much more consequential. Mm -hmm. And you could be impoverished or you could be driven from your community if you were divorced or abandoned. And so the stakes were much higher for women uh, when it came to non-monogamous behavior. And of course, monogamy was about often controlling women's bodies. Women were expected to be monogamous uh, and men had a lot more latitude. Uh, around monogamy. But there are definitely benefits to being monogamous that, that I, as a non-monogamous person, person, am perfectly willing to acknowledge. And even in the lives of people I know who are successfully monogamous and wish to be monogamous, I'm willing to celebrate. The reverse often isn't true. Like, there are advantages to non-monogamy mm -hmm. that rarely will people in monogamous relationships uh, acknowledge. Like, like? Uh, variety. Yeah. Pleasure. Pleasure, uh, and not just selfish pleasure taken solo or away from your partner. Shared sexual adventures that you can have with your partner together are often a feature of non-monogamous relationships. I think it's possible and I think it's advisable for people in monogamous relationships to make room for some erotic autonomy, mm -hmm. for a zone where the erotic self of your partner is honored and is, is seen as separate from you and that's okay. There may be things your partner fantasizes about or is interested in or people your partner may desire that they don't act on those desires but allow them to have them without policing them or punishing them for them because you are two separate individuals who've come together. You've made a monogamous commitment. And so much of what I've observed writing and reading and advising people about their sex lives over the years is people creating conflict that's easily avoided mm -hmm. in a monogamous relationship that could be unpicked, could be undone just by saying to each other, so... You checked out the barista. 
Mm-hmm. I can freak out about that and say, oh my God, you want to have sex with that barista? Or I can say, yeah, of course he wants to have sex with the barista. The barista is hot. Who wouldn't want to have sex with that barista? <laughs> and he doesn't have sex with the barista because he honors the commitment that he's made to me. And that's beautiful in a way. Knowing your partner would like to, perhaps on some level, but they don't, that is a sacrifice they're making for you, for your relationship. It's about prioritizing you, prioritizing the relationship. And so knowing that there are desires that aren't all directed toward you, allowing for that can make your monogamous relationship a lot less conflict-ridden. It's very interesting what you're saying because, you know, human sexuality is, of course, so complex. But even when there is permission not to be monogamous in a healthy relationship, I think jealousy does creep in. What do you have to say about that? People often say, you know, don't you get jealous? Monogamous Mm -hmm. people will say that to me. And I look at them and say, I do, don't you? (laughs) Very good answer. Monogamous people often project onto non-monogamous people assumptions that just aren't true. You know, monogamy means one thing. Monogamy is really easy to understand. Here are two people who do not have sex with anybody else. And all too often don't have sex with each other either, but whatever. Mm. And then they look at a monogamous couple and think, here are two people who have sex whenever they want, wherever they want, with whoever they want. And that is not how non-monogamy actually works in anybody's relationships. There are rules in monogamous relationships. There are rules in non-monogamous relationships. And the rules are often designed to not just accommodates the wrong word, control for in a compassionate way your partner's insecurities and jealousies so that they don't become uh, inflamed, so that they don't destabilize your relationship. It's about consideration. And so your partner in an anonymous relationship feels jealous. How you respond to that will mean whether or not you open the relationship or the relationship stays open or if you close it or close it for a time or how you tweak the rules so that whatever was happening that was causing your partner to feel jealous doesn't happen. I I can give an example, a really anodyne and PG example from my own relationship. Please do. My my husband and I have been together for 24 years. Mm -hmm. We've been non-monogamous for 20 of those years. Um, And early on, uh, you know, after we opened the relationship, my partner went and got a Christmas tree with somebody else for our, our house. And I was livid in this way I didn't quite understand. And it was because like going to pick a Christmas tree out together, that was a boyfriend thing. That was a husband thing. That mm. that was something that that was about our intimacy and our space and our house and who we were together. And that I was I was really jealous and really upset that he went and picked up a Christmas tree with some other guy. Mm-hmm. As opposed to like doing that with me, waiting to the weekend to do that with me. What did you learn from that experience? That intimacy isn't just erotics, that intimacy isn't just sex, that there are things that belong to the couple. And, you know, this is a kind of hierarchical idea of non-monogamous relationships where there's the primary couple and then there are other partners or secondary partners. And that's how our non-monogamous relationship is really structured. Uh, and then there are things that, that belong to us and we have to honor those things, but we have to identify those things in, be, in order to be able to to safeguard them. And I didn't realize, he didn't realize that this would be something upsetting to me. And I hadn't anticipated that he would ever go pick a Christmas tree out with somebody else. So I hadn't, you know, said to him, don't do that, or there's a rule against that, because we hadn't known to make it. And then, and then when it happened, we were like, okay, what are the things that are 
for me mean us and for you mean us that aren't just sex? And how do we protect those things so we can protect our relationship? One of the most common things that uh, I see amongst, uh, when I was in practice amongst patients was three issues around uh, sexuality. One is embodied in the question, do you love me? The second is, am I good enough? And the third was about control. And uh, that these issues actually led to a lot of other uh, neuroses and a lot of uh, dysfunction, not only in, in these personal relationships, but social dysfunction at large. So I'm asking you this question. Love, intimacy cannot or should not be threatened with non-monogamy. Is that what you're saying? Love and intimacy can be threatened by non-monogamy. I think love and intimacy can also be threatened by monogamy. Mm -hmm. uh, when two people open up a relationship and it collapses, non-monogamy always gets the blame. Mm -hmm. um, when two people are in a monogamous relationship and it falls apart, monogamy never gets the blame. Uh, even in cases where perhaps openness could have saved the relationship. There are instances where one person's sexual or need for intimacy uh, can't be and, and isn't being met in that relationship and never will be for whatever reason. There are cases where, you know, there are instances, I'm sure you've helped couples where, you know, one person had a very low or no libido and the mm -hmm. other person had a high libido. Well, how do you save that relationship? There can be a lot of love in that relationship. There can be children. There can be um, shared finances, merged lives, extended families that have been knit together. And yet there's this disconnect sexually at the heart of the relationship that's generating so much conflict and misery that it threatens everything. Mm -hmm. And some people look at that and say, okay, well, they have to get a divorce because monogamy is that important mm -hmm. because what they committed to was not each other. What mm -hmm. they committed to was monogamy. And so it, the relationship has to end for the person with the high libido to be, feel sexually fulfilled, to find a new partner who can meet their sexual needs, and for the, per with the person with the low libido not to be hectored or pressured into doing anything sexually that they don't want to do. And I look at that relationship and say, well, there's another accommodation mm. that's possible, which is an open relationship that allows for the partner with the higher libido some release, uh, some ability to you know have a secondary partner outside the relationship in a controlled way that honors the rules, that honors the primacy in place of the, 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 the spouse, and then takes the pressure off the low libido spouse and the high libido spouse no longer is miserable. And, you know, a lot of people, because we live in a, a very sex negative, sex phobic culture, will look at that and say, well, the high libido partner should just go without. Sex is that unimportant. Well, sex is that unimportant. Why not let that person do that unimportant thing with someone else? As I'm listening to you, first of all, I'm having some insight into my own assumptions too. Uh, so thank you for that. But I'm also getting a sense that you have a very strong sense of right and wrong, but you are trying to remoralize our understanding of sex and relationships, showing how the old morality is defunct and often cruel and harsh and damaging. Would you say I'm correct in that assessment? I think you are correct in that assessment. I want relationships to work, and we have to be practical, and I think we have to be realistic about, you know, a marriage is whatever the two people in it say that it is. And rather than people hewing to some 
idea or ideal or some outside standard of what their marriage or relationship has to be or look like, what works for those two people? What will make those two people happy? What will make their children feel safe and secure in, in, you know, in their home? And what will help that relationship succeed? And sometimes that's monogamy. Sometimes that's not monogamy. Like I said, I've been with my, my husband for 24 years. Mm-hmm. And I've had this conversation so many times I began to like take notes after I have it to like mark that I've had another one of these conversations where someone will say to me, I could never do what you and Terry do. I could never have an open relationship because I value commitment too highly. And the next thing out of that, their mouths is always all three of my marriages were monogamous. <laughs> and I look at them and I'm like, you are committed to monogamy. I'm committed to Terry. And we're 24 years into this and you've, married and divorced three times, but you're the better person who takes commitment and love more seriously than I do because with each of the people that you have discarded over the last 20 years, you were monogamous during that marriage. And to me, that seems crazy. That seems like getting everything out of whack. And of course, I'm not, uh, I always feel like I have to qualify everything with I'm not suggesting that everyone should be monogamous. I want a world where people who can't, who aren't good at monogamy, don't want to do monogamy. Monogamy doesn't make them happy. Partner with each other so you have fewer marriages where there's a monogamous person who, you know, person who wants and is good at and is happy and content in a monogamous relationship and someone who can't do it and is miserable because those are the relationships that fall apart. I'm thinking you're actually an advocate for a higher morality, honesty, transparency, and uh, commitment for those who want to be committed to relationships of intimacy and love. And also forgiveness. And and forgiveness, To to screw up. Um, One of the things I say often to monogamous people who've uh, experienced an infidelity, you know, there's been somebody cheated in the Mm -hmm. relationship. Monogamy is the only thing humans attempt where perfection is the only standard for success. You can be the world's greatest chef and burn an omelet and still be the world's greatest chef. You can be Sean White, world's greatest snowboarder, and fall down (laughs) in the snow and get up and still be Sean White, world's greatest snowboarder. You can be married to someone for 50 years. You fell down once. You cheated once. You learned your lesson. You stared into the abyss. You realized everything you risked. You never, ever cheated again. How could you do that? You're a terrible, awful, rotten person. And I think what we need to say to people is you can fall down and you can get up. We talk about monogamy like it's virginity. Like, you were monogamous, you had sex with someone else, you broke your monogamy hymen, it's gone, (laughs) it's over. We need to talk about monogamy if we want to strengthen and protect and preserve imperfect monogamous relationships. In other words, all monogamous relationships, because they're all imperfect, because every relationship is imperfect. We need to talk about it the way we talk about sobriety, where you can be sober, and you can fall off the wagon, and you can sober back up and get back on that wagon. What do artificial intelligence, virtual reality, robots, and other innovations we don't even know about yet mean for our relationship with sex and sexuality? We'll have more with Dan Savage after the break. Do you recall the first chat rooms? You've got mail. Remember the first text you sent or received? 
the excitement of a new technology and a new way of communicating intimacy, swiping, clicking, the promise of everything you could want at your fingertips? Are these profound changes to the nature of our human intimacy? Or just another way we try as human beings to find and connect with each other? Technology has potential and the challenge of changing the most intimate parts of our lives. So, I wanted to ask Dan, a prophet of evolving mores, what lies in store? I'd love to know your opinion on things like dating apps, virtual reality, AI, sex robots. How is technology changing with and shaping our desires and expectations? And what's your view? It's funny how we look back on other sex panics tied to technology now and laugh. You know, when the automobile came along, that new technology created a sex panic because, you know, the suitor who used to come to your house and sit on your porch or sit in your living room with your daughter could now drive off with your daughter in his car and park somewhere. And they had their own room, basically, separate from the, the houses of both parents, both sets of parents. And that was really threatening. And there were sex panics about that. The same with the telephone. The telephone came along. Rather than somebody having to come to your door and knock on the door and call on your daughter, it's always about the daughters and protecting the daughters, they could ring your daughter and have a conversation that you weren't privy to, that you weren't able to monitor. Hello? And that created a big sex panic. And we forget about that, or when we remember it, or we hear about it, we laugh. And we're sort of having sex panics now about these new technologies. But we, I don't want to minimize the fact that these new technologies are pervasive in a way that those weren't. And it's hard to separate, you know, this impulse towards sex panic, which I think as humans we are always prone to because sex is big and scary and powerful and more powerful than we as individuals are. And so when we look at these technologies, they're scary because sex is always scary. And we always want to attach our anxieties uh, around sex to, uh, you know, to filter them through all sort of changes in human culture uh, and assess them for how they're going to impact our romantic lives or our sex lives. Apps, dating apps, they've been really good and bad. They've, you know, 70, 80% of all gay relationships begin with an online dating app or mm -hmm. hookup. And it, I believe it's 40 to 50% now of straight relationships, and soon it'll be a majority of straight relationships. And so in that way, these, you know, a dating app is a really positive thing. On the other hand, dating apps create this idea that there's this endless sort of uh, number of potential partners. And sometimes having too many choices paralyzes people. It's the paradox of choice. Um, and so th there's the good and the bad. Same thing with online porn. As porn became more widely available, became ubiquitous, sex crimes decreased. Hmm. And so porn, you know, there's a lot of online porn. In some ways, it's I, I guess it's bad because it's shaping some people's expectations. And porn presents a really unrealistic picture to young, impressionable people hmm. about what sex is. And in the absence of really comprehensive sex ed that's realistic about sex and not just reproductive biology that we call sex ed, yeah, that can that can harm. On the other hand, fewer people are having sex, fewer young people are sexually active now at 15, 16, which we used to have a sex panic about the sex that 15-year-olds were having. And now there's a cover story in The Atlantic that's basically a sex panic about the fact that young people aren't having sex. So what's the reason for that? That young people aren't having sex? There's a million theories. But I one see. of them is the, the availability of online porn. I that see. people are exploring sex without having to explore it with a partner first. That they're masturbating more, including young women are masturbating mm -hmm. more. 
And some people look at that and go, oh my God, young women are masturbating more. But other people look at that and go, good, young women are masturbating more because it's been a problem for those of us in the, you know, who write about sex and talk about sex. Boys arrive at partnered sex really experts on how their own genitals work. Mm-hmm. And there's a, they call it the orgasm gap. Women arrive, off, all too often women and girls arrive at partnered sex without ever having masturbated, not knowing how their own genitals work, not knowing what their arousal plateaus feel like or what the point of orgasmic inevitability feels like. And so their partners aren't able to pleasure them because they can't demonstrate to their partners how to pleasure them. And so maybe that's a good thing that porn is doing. It's inspiring more young women to, you know, masturbate, to to be as expert in their own pleasure peaks and arousal cycles as boys are when they arrive at partner sex, and that will close the orgasm gap. And so there's a positive there. So when it comes to new technologies, we have to look for the, you know, the bad is always going to be apparent because that's what everybody wants to talk about. But then we need to look and say and ask ourselves, are there benefits here? How do we increase the benefit, and how do we work to minimize the harms that this new technology brings? Is there a future in which humans maybe don't need or want to have sex anymore with each other? Is, uh, <laughs> is, that, uh, is there a threat to human sexuality? A lot of people would say robots, mm-hmm. you know, the coming of the sex bots are a threat. Uh, I find it interesting and in telling that they're literally creating robots right now that are going to take our jobs. They're mm-hmm creating robots. Uh, the military is creating robots that'll take our lives. But the only robots that we want to talk about are the robots that are going to take our loads that we're going to have sex with, potentially, that those are the problems, not the ones that are going to kill us, not the ones that are going to uh, make us all redundant, but the ones that might give us a kind of sexual release or joy. Those are the ones to worry about. You know, there's a very interesting uh, psychological angle to this. If a robot was as good as a human being or even better, once you found out it was a robot, you exactly. probably lose your erection. Exactly. The, the thing a human gives you that a machine can't is to be chosen. And there's some part of our ego that needs to, f- to have that affirmation that there's this other human being that has agency and free will who chose us. Even if they chose us, you know, ideally what people would like is to be chosen for you know, your adult lifetime, uh, but even if it's being chosen for an evening or a weekend, but to be chosen is the thing that the robot can't give you, and it's a deep human need that will prevent us all just from running off with sex robots and then going extinct. So what I'm hearing is that you don't see these technologies as a threat to human sexuality, that you think natural selection will allow the new sexuality to evolve the way it's supposed to. Yes, if we're thoughtful about it, if we don't allow ourselves to be panicked, if we don't only see the negative, but we don't want to be Pollyanna and only see the positive. Porn you know, is ubiquitous and easily available now in a way it wasn't when I was 13 years old. Um, you know, I just parented a you know a young man who's now in his 20s, but you know, when he was a teenager, he had access to porn in a way that I didn't, mm-hmm. and we had to talk about that. And that those were awkward conversations to have, mm-hmm. particularly as a gay parent with a straight of kid. Course. Those were awkward conversations to have with my my son about porn and what you're gonna see and what it means and how to be a critical consumer of it. And the the you know, the I couldn't just tell him not to look. I mean, I could. That's what a lot of parents do. Mm-hmm. Not realistic. They're going to look. So you have to arm them with 
ideas so that when they do look, they're being what they're seeing is being filtered. And I would say to him, what you're seeing in porn isn't real fun. And it isn't your fun. It's not fun you're having. You're having this vicarious experience, and it's packaged in a way that's misleading, that can be deceitful, um, and you need to view it critically. And so when he started, you know, when we assumed he might be watching porn, we had these conversations around, like, what are you seeing? The conversations were, you know, a lot more complicated and difficult, particularly for a young straight man. Like, you're watching a kind of kabuki theater Sex, you know, it has the relationship to sex that an action movie has to daily life. It's a distortion. And you have to see the ways in which it's distorted so that then your own sex life, when you begin to have one, isn't distorted by those distortions. And those are complicated, difficult conversations to have with a kid. So what little I know about human history is that up until 70,000 years ago, we were no different than many other humanoids. We are homo sapiens, the wise ones, a name that we gave ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> But then something very interesting happened. And 70,000 years ago, there was, according to these deep historians, humans evolved what we today call imagination and the ability to fantasize. And then about uh, 30,000 years ago, they de developed elaborate uh, human constructs and storytelling to, to actually uh, create new stories. And that resulted in what we call human civilization. Not all of it is good, we know, but what differentiated us from every other species is our ability to fantasize, our ability to imagine. Had we not done that, there wouldn't be the construct that we call money or Wall Street or national identity or gender identity or any of that. So we're different from any other species. And we've created our biological apparatus to, in such a way that we are storytellers. Well, sex is a story we tell ourselves, and erotics is a story we tell us. I can't, I, I'm blanking on his name, but there's an evolutionary psychologist who theorizes that, you know, when you look at human sexuality, it is so elaborate mm -hmm. um, that the same sort of capacity in our, our minds to engage in abstract thought also has turned our erotics uh, or infused our erotics with similar abstractions. It's why you don't see, you know, squirrels in trees wearing fetish gear or, <laughs> you know, staging elaborate fantasy scenarios. Um, you also don't see squirrels in trees uh, preparing elaborate, you know, seven-course meals. Um, that the human sort of impulse is toward uh, abstraction but also elaboration. Uh, and, of course, that would flow through our erotics too. And a lot of what we fantasize about uh, Are our fears. We love drama. We love drama. We've, we love conflict and we want to experience mm. it vicariously. And then that flows into our sex lives too, our erotics too. So many of our fantasies are eroticized fears. And it's not the case that everyone's uh, erotic imagination seizes on their fears, but a significant percentage of everyone's erotic imagination sees on certain fears. And that is also what it means to be human. When people look at our sexual diversity, uh, when they look at our sort of rich fantasy life, there's this desire to stigmatize it or to, to problematize it, or to see it as somehow an indictment of the individuals who are 
engaged in those behaviors because there should be only one right way to have sex and everybody should be having sex that way. Well, everyone's not having dinner that way. Everyone's not building houses that way. Not all societies are organized in the same way. Not all cities are organized in the same way. That there's this human capacity to abstract thought and really a, a richness of cultural expression that we tend to rightfully now, thankfully, celebrate in all its manifestations except sexual. And it's about time that we did. Because and it is about time that we did. And, you know, what you're doing is actually reinforcing my thesis that our biology is a function of our consciousness. And since fantasy and imagination is linked to our biology, people get erections just by fantasizing, not doing mm-hmm. anything. They get uh, erections and they ejaculate in dream states. So consciousness is fundamental right here and it's part of our uh, evolution and the evolution of sexuality is also part of our human evolution I think Uh, that we don't have a fixed sexual nature like everything else our sexuality is also evolving and that you know Dan is actually could be considered a pioneer in this field (laughs) In some ways, the metaphor I like to use is the one grain of sand creates the pearl, but all pearls are different. But there's that still that same thing often at the center that's the same. And if we could just recognize that whatever else has built up around our sexuality, at the root of it, we're all very, very similar. And our differences are, you know, a thin layer of frosting on a big fat slab of cake that's really identical because when you get under those differences what you find is a desire for intimacy for closeness for vulnerability a desire for freedom including the freedom to explore our fears in a controlled environment which is often what erotic play is you know a lot of kinks are just cops and robbers for grown-ups with your pants off and (laughs) that kind of play can be very healthy for an individual to engage in Um, and rather than looking at people who have found joy in play in their sex life, eroticized play, as as sick or sinful or deviant, we should look at them and regard them as lucky. So sexual uh, evolution is, like all evolution, a never-ending horizon. When it comes to sex, it's clear that our ideas of what is normal, what is permissible, is always changing. Not always in a forward direction. Sex is one of the most judged arenas in human history. Dan lived through stigma and bias and emerged as a courageous proponent of acceptance. That seems like a message we can all believe in. I'm Deepak Chopra and this is Infinite Potential. Now, it's time for our gratitude list. Infinite Potential is produced by David Shadrach-Smith and Julie Magruder and edited by Andy Jaskiewicz. Our story editor is Sam Dingman. The audio engineer is Bob Tabador. Carolyn Rangel is our associate producer and Serena Regan is the coordinating producer. We especially thank our guests sponsors, interns, and everyone who has contributed to bring infinite potential to you. 
Our show is created and executive produced by David Shadrach Smith, Jan Cohen, and me. We're most grateful to you for helping grow our community of listeners. I'm Deepak Chopra, and this is Infinite Potential. Infinite Potential.